Well, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks and who transforms lives as your word is heard. As we hear what you have to say now in our homes across the mountains, please be at work in us by your spirit. Open our ears and soften our hearts. Help us to see you as you really are. And so live lives of faith and love for you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as I was growing up, The Simpsons was a regular part of the TV diet in my family. And for years, Channel 10 advertised The Simpsons as the most dysfunctional family on TV. Now, most of this dysfunction centred around the dad, Homer's constant buffoonery and his questionable methods of disciplining his kids, and Bart, the 10-year-old's practical joking and general disobedience. But sometimes you'd even get the mum, Marge, in on the act, and 8-year-old Lisa as well. A few years back, though, I read an article which pointed out that despite all the hype of the advertising slogan, The Simpsons had pretty much nailed its portrayal of the average American family. Now perhaps family life was more hidden in the early 90s, or perhaps the slogan, the most average family on television, wouldn't quite have pulled in the viewers. But the point the article was making was that every family is somewhere on this spectrum of dysfunction. It seems to be the case that every family is normal until you get to know it. And if ever there was a time to prove the truth of this, it's now in this current pandemic. Many of us have been thrust into close quarters living 24-7 just at the very same time that financial stress is arriving, not to mention worries about the virus itself. Patience is being tested as we now have to deal with that constant drip of new little annoyances. At a more serious level, police are speaking about the rise in domestic violence rates. And then there's those of us who live alone for whom family dysfunction may be revealed in other ways, with the spotlight shone on existing estrangements, perhaps. And there's also a new potential for conflict between the generations in a family, with disagreements about what precautions need to be taken, weighing up who can visit whom, depending on who is more at risk and who could be a carrier, and so on. And so while family dysfunction may have always been there, at a level we can bear, well now it's magnified. Well, today in our Genesis series, we turn to the next generation of the family of God's promise, the first half of the account of the family of Jacob. There's 12 sons plus daughters, each born to one of four different mothers, at least one of whom, Jacob's favourite wife, Rachel, is now dead. And on the spectrum of dysfunction, this family is down the extreme end. There's favouritism, hatred, Jealousy, a plot to kill a brother 
that evolves into an unspeakable act of deception. And yet, what we see in this passage is that in the midst of such extreme family dysfunction, there is hope. There is hope because even in the dysfunction of human relationships, God is in charge of all things. Which means that whatever we humans mess up, God's plans to fulfill His promise of blessing to the world cannot be derailed. So if family dysfunction has been a source of grief for you this week, know that as you trust in the sovereignty of God, you can live with hope, with the sure hope of God's future blessing, which for us is even more certain because of the work of Jesus. What's more, our passage makes it clear that this is the case even though God's people themselves are the dysfunctional ones. God's church is a family and so is on that spectrum of dysfunction too. Which is important for us to remember, especially if you are the kind of person who has the tendency to look around that church and feel let down by it or you're critical of it. You might question whether the church could ever fulfill the mission that God has given us. But here we see that the flaws and even the grievous sins of the people of God cannot derail His sovereign purposes. So it'd be good to have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 37 as we get into today's passage. Now the passage begins with Joseph being sold as a slave to some passing traders who are on their way down south to do business in Egypt. That's chapter 37 in a nutshell. The brothers, they had taken Jacob's flocks to find better pasture. They'd ended up in a place called Dothan, about 140 kilometres away from Hebron, where Jacob's family was based at the time. And Jacob had sent Joseph to report back on how they were going. But as soon as the brothers see Joseph in the distance, they make plans to do away with him. The brothers, you see, they had had a gutful of Joseph and a gutful of the favouritism that their father, Jacob, had shown towards Joseph as the oldest son of his favourite wife, Rachel. And so, in chapter 37... Verse 2, we're told of an earlier instance where, uh, where Joseph had given Jacob a bad report of the brothers in the field. Uh, we then hear in verse 3 of Jacob's favoritism, how he loved Joseph more than any of his sons, and of the ornate robe that Jacob had made for him, a vivid daily reminder of Jacob's favoritism. Verse 4 says, the brothers hated him for it. But it's Joseph's dreams, it's Joseph's dreams that have really tipped the brothers over the edge. Twice he has dreams that symbolise all the brothers bowing down to him in submission. And both times, tactlessly, he lets them know all about it. And the brothers, they're incensed. No doubt they're aware of God's promise 
to their ancestors that kings would come from their family. Verse 5 says that they hate him all the more. And verse 11, that they were jealous of him. And so they've had a gutful. And when they see him in the distance near Dothan, miles away from the protection of Jacob, they plot to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they say in verse 19. Come now, let's kill him. But before Jacob, uh, Joseph rather, gets to them, Reuben hears of the plan. He was not part of the original plot. And he convinces them that actively killing Joseph, uh, rather than actively killing Joseph, they should just throw him into a water storage system. The result will be the same, death, but they won't be guilty of actually shedding his blood, a technicality, but an appealing one, it seems. As the eldest, Reuben is meant to be in charge, and so the others agree, and when Joseph arrives, the brothers take him, they strip him of his robe, and they throw him into the empty cistern. They don't realise that secretly, Reuben intended to rescue Joseph and take him back to Jacob, which is probably intended to win back Jacob's favour for Reuben, uh, win back his rights as firstborn. Genesis later tells us that Reuben had lost these rights because he had earlier slept with Jacob's concubine. But Reuben never gets the chance to act on his plan. He goes away and upsteps the, steps the opportunistic Judah, suggesting it would be better to sell Joseph some passing traders. Now, it's a neat solution that Judah proposes. They'll get rid of Joseph without having his death on their conscience. And they'll get some money out of it as well. So the brothers agree. Joseph is sold. Reuben despairs at his lost opportunity. And then, when Joseph's robe is presented to Jacob, smattered in the blood of a goat... Jacob draws the conclusion that his favourite son has been devoured and he is inconsolable in his grief. Well, that's where the story of Jacob's sons begins, chapter 37. The poisonous favouritism that we saw with Rebekah and Isaac and their sons and then with Jacob, with Rachel, has now seeped into the next generation. And with toxic results. But playing favourites among family members can never really have anything but toxic consequences, can it? And so there's a warning for us here too. And while it's true that different family members will perhaps click better with you and be easier company, while others will require a little bit of extra grace, the unchanging principle is that you ought to love and honour everyone in your family, regardless. Now, of course, there are different obligations according to the relationship. The obligations of a parent to children look different from the obligations of a brother to a sister or of a child to their parents, and things will change according to age and stage of life as well. But to withhold love from one And to shower it on another, well, that always ends badly. 
So the traders sell Joseph into Egypt. The covenant family is torn apart, riven by lies and hatred, and Jacob himself is paralyzed by grief. If you didn't know the ending, you'd be forgiven for thinking that bringing this mess back together was beyond the realms of possibility, let alone forming it into a nation through whom one day the whole world would be blessed. And then comes chapter 38, where that all seems even less likely. Now there's a break in the main story at this point. We leave Joseph in Egypt and we don't come to him for another chapter. And the focus here is entirely on Judah, who leaves his brothers, marries a Canaanite, and by the end of the chapter, some 20 or so years later, has fathered five sons. Two of them die and two others are born to Tamar, the widow of Judah's firstborn, Ur. And just a bit of a warning, the story gets a little MA-rated at this point. Now, we've already seen Judah's opportunism in the previous chapter and his capacity as a schemer. But here we see just how hard and how dark his heart really is. He insinuates himself among the pagan Canaanites. He denies Tamar of her right to marry his thirdborn, thereby probably consigning her to a life of poverty. He sleeps with Tamar, who he doesn't recognise, but he thinks is a prostitute, a pagan shrine prostitute, no less. And then when he finds out that Tamar is guilty of prostitution, instantly he condemns her to death. So he's godless, he's selfish, he's harsh, and he's hypocritical. But, by the end of it all, he is also deeply contrite. When his own immorality is exposed, he declares of Tamar in verse 26, She is more righteous than I. Now, you might wonder, what is this episode even doing here? There's no mention either of Joseph or of God in this passage. Well, right throughout Genesis, one of the big questions that we're supposed to keep asking for each generation is this. Who is the one who will inherit God's promise and be the one through whom the whole world will be blessed? First, God chose Abraham, and then Isaac, not Ishmael, and then Jacob, not Esau. So who is it in this generation? Well, for this generation, it's a little more complex because, in a sense, all of the 12 sons are elect. They all become the forefathers of the tribes of Israel. But there is a special focus on Joseph as Rachel's firstborn and, in this chapter, on Judah. Judah was born fourth, but his three older brothers had each disgraced themselves in Jacob's eyes, leaving Judah next in line. But taking the whole Bible into account, ultimately we know that it is through Jesus, God's Messiah, that God's blessing comes into the world. It's through trusting Him who died for sinners that people from all nations can look forward to eternity with God and all that that entails.
And whose lineage was Jesus in? Judah's. And not just Judah's, but Judah's son, Perez, who he had fathered to Tamar. In the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, it makes special note of this. Tamar is one of only five women mentioned there. And her sons, Perez and Zerah, are the only brothers mentioned. And so this sordid episode is critical in the whole sweep of what God is doing to redeem and bring blessing to the world. But not only that, this episode also contains the turning point that God uses to humble Judah and to make him a suitable forefather of Jesus. I've already mentioned his contrition and next week we'll see him back with his brothers and taking a leadership role as he humbly offers to give himself in the place of his brother Benjamin. Now the story then rewinds and it reverts back to Joseph in chapter 39, picking up from the moment that he's bought by Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. And the question is, at this point, how is this brash 17-year-old accustomed to a life of preferential treatment whose dreams seemingly pointed to a divinely ordained royal destiny, how is he going to cope as a slave? Well, almost immediately, we're told in chapter 39, verse 2, that the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 2, uh, verse two it says that there. Uh, this is covenant language, the Lord being with Joseph. A special relationship. It's language that we've heard in each generation of the patriarchs. And so, with God's presence comes God's blessing. Joseph prospers, verse 2. And he has success in everything that he does, verse 3 says. And so he rises steeply in Potiphar's house. And it's not just Joseph who is blessed, it's Potiphar as well. Another vignette in Genesis of the nations being blessed just as God had promised. And so, soon enough, verse 6, Potiphar left everything that he had in Joseph's care. Joseph's running Potiphar's whole household. And so it suddenly seems like the destiny pictured in Joseph's dreams could, in fact, be a real possibility. With God's presence, anything is possible. But just as each of Abraham and Jacob in various ways had to be refined by God to be suitable recipients of his blessing, so it would be with Joseph. Now, already Joseph had suffered injustice at the hands of his brothers. Sure, he was annoying, but he really didn't deserve to be sold into slavery. And it seems to have humbled him. It's probably pretty safe to assume that he didn't share his dreams with Potiphar. But it's in what happens next that a new godly humility and maturity and a deep trust in God really becomes evident in Joseph. Potiphar's wife repeatedly attempts to seduce him, and Joseph is a model of integrity. Verse 9. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? 
If you ever wanted a lived example of the Apostle Paul's command to flee sexual immorality, well, this is it. But the refining process doesn't stop there. Despite Joseph's integrity, or even because of Joseph's integrity, he ends up in prison. One day, Potiphar's wife grabs his cloak as he flees, and she frames him. That Hebrew slave came to make sport of me, she says in verse 17. Potiphar's incensed, and to prison Joseph goes. But while in prison, Joseph meets two of Pharaoh's chief advisors, his cupbearer and his baker. These weren't just menial domestic roles. They have dreams, and with God's help, Joseph interprets their dreams. And to the cupbearer, who three days later would be released from prison and restored to his role, Joseph says this, verse 14. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Then, having asked the cupbearer to remember him, the chapter ends with these somber words. Verse 23, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. So Joseph's hopes have been raised here, only then to be dashed. Years in prison, despite having done nothing to deserve it. But through it all, Joseph never loses his faith in God. And in the promise implicit in his dreams as a 17-year-old. He doesn't question whether God is just cruelly toying with him as some might. You see this, especially in the way that Joseph continues to insist that God is the one who gives him interpretation of dreams. And so he is faithful. He clings faithfully to God. And so while this time, both in Potiphar's service and in prison, are times of God's blessing, yes, as he rises through the ranks, that doesn't change the fact that they are also times of undeserved suffering. He's separated from his family. He's stuck in a dungeon. And this is always the way with God. The path to greatness must Involve suffering. Indeed, later Jesus would say of himself to some followers of his on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then enter his glory? To suffer without deserving it is the path by which God refines us for his glory moulding us and shaping us to be his suitable companions for eternity. Thirteen years, we find out in the next chapter. Thirteen years Joseph had endured between being sold to the traders and his appointment to a role in Pharaoh's court. So his was a thirteen-year process of refinement from brash teenager teenager to godly humility. 
a man now ready to take on the exalted role and visit his dreams. Because he can now recognise that this is not all about me, but about God and his purposes. As is expected that this season of coronavirus shutdown may last up to six months, in many ways, it's going to be a tough season, a season of suffering. But one of your prayers ought to be that this will be a season of refinement in whatever way it is that you need to be refined by God. What is it that the Lord is going to teach you in this season? A new humble dependence on Him, perhaps? Pray for refinement and hang tightly onto Him. And He will shape you for good during this season of suffering. Of course, for it to be a season of refinement, we also need to have utter trust that God actually is in charge of all things. And that's what chapter 41 is all about. Now, it's true that chapter 41 charts Joseph's spectacular rise from prisoner to second in command of all Egypt, but really it's a chapter about God's absolute sovereignty. Pharaoh has a pair of dreams that none of his magicians or wise men could interpret. And the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph. This is now two years on from when the cupbearer was released. Pharaoh calls for Joseph and he recounts two of his dreams, both of which, Joseph says, represent seven years of coming plenty, followed by seven years of famine. But the thing to notice is the part that God plays in all of this. In verse 16, Joseph tells Pharaoh that he cannot interpret Pharaoh's dreams, but God can. And then, as Joseph gives the interpretation, twice he says, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 25 and verse 28. And then, in verse 32, Joseph says, The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. So God has decided what's going to happen. Then God gave Pharaoh the dreams, and then God gave Joseph the interpretation. And on into the final section of the chapter, God does exactly what he said he would. Seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Now, we know from history that pharaohs pretty much viewed themselves as divine, and so the message here is pretty clear. God, and not Pharaoh, is the one who is in charge over all things. He is the one who reigns. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of the land. There there is no one so discerning and wise as you, he says to Joseph in verse 39. Joseph embarks on his project of storage, and then when the famine arrives, verse 57, all the world comes to Egypt to buy grain from him. And with that, the scene is set for the preservation and indeed reconciliation of this dysfunctional family which is what we're going to look at next week.
And so as dire as things had looked, no amount of hatred or jealousy or plots or scheming or even disasters like famine or we might add, a virus will get in the way of God fulfilling his plans to gather together and bless a people for himself. Our God is sovereign over all things. And that's just as true today as it was in the days of Joseph. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that in the midst of human dysfunction, there is hope. We thank you that what we do and the messes we make cannot derail your ultimate purpose to bless your world through your Son. Please help us to hold tight to you during this time. And please make it a time when we are refined and made more and more suitable recipients of your blessing. Amen.